We're glad to have Brother Wendell Heatwell here. When we planned the service, we gave him a topic that was perhaps a little different than your um, normal Sunday evening topic. But we gave him the topic, we asked him to talk on of uh, the purpose or the history, purpose, and blessings of a conference. So we know that there's different ways of doing church. And the way we do it is only one. But uh, there are pros and there's differences. And so we've asked uh, Brother Wendell to, to share on that topic. So let's give him our attention. It's been said that when someone asks how you are, they don't want an organ recital. Nevertheless, I do want to explain that it's out of my normal practice to be addressing you on a winter evening like this in shirt sleeves and open collar. I'm dealing with a medical issue that involves swelling in my face and neck, my arms and my hands. And this evening, my neck is at the size that it's uncomfortable to button my shirt. So I hope you can forbear with me if you need to and understand is a personal opinion of mine, but I don't think that open shirt collars and plain coats pair well together, and so I don't want to throw the weight of my support to that by dressing that way. So I hope you can understand the explanation I've given to you for how I'm presenting myself to you this evening. I think the program committee would have been open to the title have it being tweaked, and it's my fault that it wasn't. But I wish that things would have worked out that for a title, for a title that positioned me less as a cheerleader for a conference church organization. I do favor a conference structure in most situations, but by now I wish that the title had simply said, Conference Explained, and it would have cast me at least a little bit of a more neutral position right up front. But by the time I get done, you'll see my true colors anyway. The Bible really doesn't spell out in minute detail how churches should be organized and relate to one another. Could it be that God intentionally made it that way so that some matters of Christian practice and of organization and church governance are somewhat open-ended so that they can be applied variously in uh, differing circumstances. So while I want to attempt to explain uh, something about uh, churches united in a conference structure and what I perceive to be the value of that, I recognize the legitimacy of other arrangements to serve uh, a similar function that a conference does. And so I want to talk, first of all, about some biblical foundations uh, for church organization. I have three uh, subpoints under that. And then I want to talk about the history and development of conference as an organization within the Anabaptist Mennonite Church. And then lastly, we'll talk, talk about what I perceive to be some of the values of the organization structure similar to what we have. So Brother Dwayne uh, hit the first one. And that is the first biblical foundation for church organization is simply that Christ is head of the church. In fact, he read the scripture uh, that I uh, had in mind to read, so I don't need to take the time for that. But Christ is the brain, as someone in my Sunday school class said today, he is the brain of the church. The brain directs 
of the members of the body as he lives in us through the Holy Spirit. And consequently, the church in the strictest sense is a theocracy, God ruling the church through, through uh, the person of Jesus Christ. He rules over his body. Those who have received forgiveness of sin and have submitted to his lordship. But Christ also de delegates, uh, and he, he rules as he works in each of us as individuals, uh, as, as believers in Christ. But God also, uh, Christ has delegated some responsibility and authority, and authority to duly chosen church leaders. Uh, so he not only directs our corporate life uh, as he works through us as individual members, but he also directs our corporate life as he works through uh, those who have been uh, put in place as uh, church leaders. Let's go to First Timothy, uh, First Peter, I'm sorry, chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. By way of an analogy to sheep herders, it says here in verse 4 that uh, make a reference to Christ, and when the chief shepherd appears. Okay, so Christ is the chief shepherd. He is the one who, who cares for the church. Again, I repeat, he cares for the church as he works in each of us individually and as he works uh, through those who have been uh, delegated some responsibility and authority uh, as leaders in the church. But the reference here, the passage in when Christ is being called the to uh, a chief shepherd comes out of a passage that acknowledges the fact of church leaders and speaks uh, regarding their function as shepherds. So Christ is the chief shepherd. Uh, church leaders are also chapter shepherds under Christ. And so let's read this passage, uh, Matthew 5, 1 to 4. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, when it talks here of um, church leaders, elders being shepherds. I think the older King James says feed the flock, but really shepherd the flock is a, is a better uh, translation of the, of the word. And so we could say, well, this is referring to pastoring in distinction to preaching. But no, I think that is a wrong, uh, that is a wrong distinction to make in this context. Uh, in Psalm, uh, in John 21, 6, where J Peter is there talking with Jesus, and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I do. Of course, in my words. And then Jesus gave some responses, and one of those responses, tend to my sheep. And that word tend is the same word here as shepherd, shepherd my sheep. And so from one Greek dictionary, it says that shepherding, uh, is in the sense of leading, guiding, and ruling, and in the sense of protecting, caring for, and nurturing. Nurturing. In other words, what do shepherds do? Well, shepherds do more than feed. Shepherds have a lot of things to do, 
I presume if shepherds are anything like cattlemen, there's a lot of things to do in caring for, for the flock. And so it is more than just our traditional way of thinking uh, of pastoring and visiting and talking and that type of thing. It, it encompasses the whole work of church leaders. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, to substantiate or correlate with the fact that, and I know this is a little sensitive and, and tender subject, but to the fact that there really is uh, some responsibility given to leaders of the church. It says in, in Hebrews 13, 7, Remember those who, who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome, of their conduct. And also 1 Thessalonians, if you will, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and part of 13. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. So church leaders, uh, you know, my, my first point here under uh, biblical foundations for organization, the first is that Christ is the head, but the second point is that we're talking about that church leaders have been uh, designated designated uh, with responsibility uh, and authority as well to, to function in the church. And church leaders are responsible to maintain doctrinal orthodoxy and practical purity within the church. Before ordination, potential church leaders are examined by you as you consider uh, the qualifications in Scripture and their own lives and as you then make nominations in the nomination service. And they're also examined, candidates are examined by church leaders uh, regarding uh, their own personal lives and their doctrinal beliefs. And God does not give responsibility to us without also giving us authority. He gives responsibility to government leaders and then he gives them authority. He gives responsibility to parents and he gives them authority. Uh, we see that in, um, in Ephesians. And I won't turn to it. It says, children obey your parents in the Lord and, and such things. And it goes on. And fathers do not provoke your children to anger. And so he, he gives... Uh, responsibility to parents uh, he gives them authority to carry out that responsibility but he tempers that authority that authority is not to be wielded uh, in an authoritarian way it's to be wielded with authority but in a way that that is just not arbitrary and angering to to the children I'm not saying the children will never get angry but you understand what I'm saying and the same thing applies to church leaders God gives, a responsibility to church leaders, uh, but he also gives them corresponding authority to carry out their task, but he tempers that with not lording it over them. And so he, he gives church leaders uh, some directive in, in, uh, in carrying out that ta their task. Just as parents are not perfect and can make mistakes, so with church leaders, and I don't say that lightly or carelessly uh, or as a way to excuse uh, misconduct among church leaders, but it is a fact that we all are imperfect. 
And when we as parents or church leaders become aware of the misuse of our authority, or uh, we we need to to uh, deal with that, make apology or ask forgiveness or make amends or, or whatever is uh, seems to be appropriate. Now, you know, the fact and the functioning of ministerial authority can be a source of, of tension uh, within the church. And we noted the church is a theocracy under the rule of Christ. If it is a theocracy, neither is it a democracy. Uh, not every matter comes to a majority vote by the entire membership. The way that ministerial responsibility, along with their accountability to God, uh, and ministerial authority plays out in our conference church structure is to entrust to the leaders the governance of the conference as well as making decisions on the interpretation and application prescription uh, of scripture. Now I want to read just a little bit from the conference constitution and later on I want to talk a little bit about the constitution as well. Um, for some, that may be seen over the top to have a constitution. Why can't we just have some gentlemanly agreements or something like that? But reading from the constitution, it says this, the leadership of this conference shall be those ordained bishops, ministers, and deacons having assignment within the congregations of this conference who are sound in the faith and loyal to the standards of the conference. They shall constitute the governing body of the conference. And then later on, under the article having to do with meetings, it says that conference meetings shall be held annually for fellowship and mutual counsel on issues facing the church. The meetings shall include public sessions for the fellowship and inspiration of the entire brotherhood. The brotherhood is urged to be present at all public meetings of conference and to participate in the discussion of issues facing conference. Make note of that. All conference members are eligible to vote on matters of general business. Voting is restricted to the leadership on issues of interpretation of application of scripture. What I'm saying, and I know this seems a little uncomfortable sometimes in conference. The moderator says, now this vote is restricted to the leaders. This vote is for everybody. And, 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 you know, it does seem just a little uncomfortable. But it reflects this thing of, of responsibility and authority that leaders have. People who have been examined who for doctrinal soundness and uh, personal uh, maturity of a, at least a certain measure of that and who have accountability for the church to, um, to have some uh, authority to guide the church in the way they understand it should go. You may agree or disagree, but it is, it is how this works out. This is the reason the conference has some uh, things that are designated uh, just for the leadership and then some that is open to everyone. I want to tell you right now that uh, conferences in the past often did not give any vote to the brotherhood. And when this conference was formed, someone from Southeastern Conference who is now deceased uh, I believe that's the person that was, said that they thought we were making a mistake by giving the Brotherhood uh, a vote. I have not come to that opinion. I think it was a move in the right direction. But it does make that little awkwardness when we have conference meetings when it's distinguished between, you know, the votes for who and the votes for the other. Now, I want to go on to a third principle, a third foundation, biblical foundation, 
uh, for church organization, and that is that the New Testament portrays churches in accountable relationships beyond the local congregation. For example, the Corinthian church reached out to Paul with some questions um, about some issues they was having, and Paul was not even there. I mean, Paul was an itinerant uh, church planner. He, he was not really a member of the Corinthian church, was he? He spent some time there. He was a missionary there, but he wasn't a long-term missionary. He wasn't there five years, and he moved on. But yet, the church reached out to him for some, some uh, questions, and he spoke authoritatively to the issue. For instance, in chapter 5, when he was talking about the, the sin that the church was tolerating, and he said, I indeed as absent in the body but present in the spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. And then we could go, and I won't take the time to do that, we could go to 2 Corinthians where the Corinthians were kind of chafing under the authority of Paul. At least some of them were. And in chapter 10, uh, perhaps I will read those verses there in chapter 10, verse, verse uh, verses 7 to 11. And then we could also go to chapter 12, verse 11, and on into chapter 13, where Paul is establishing his, his authority, his credentials to have authority over, over a church where he was not even a member. And, and he, you know, kind of felt embarrassed about this. He said, I speak as a fool. You know, he was telling about his pedigree and different things and, and his qualifications. But under the Holy Spirit, he was establishing that he really did. There was authority even outside of the local Corinthian church. So in chapter 10, uh, what did I say chapter 10? Yes, chapter 10, verses 7 to 11. You get a, a sample of, of the... Um, of him establishing his authority uh, as one who in, in one sense had a connection to the, who did have a connection to the church, but yet was actually um, not what we would consider a, a member of that church. Verse 7 of chapter 10, 2 Corinthians, do you not look, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider that in himself, this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ's. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. So the point I'm making is that there was outside authority from the local congregation speaking authoritatively into a congregation. Now, that uh, fact of the churches having an accountable and meaningful relationship beyond just the local congregation uh, is, is most visible in Acts 15 and, and the surrounding context. So let's go there to Acts 15. And allow me to employ a favorite word of John Koblenz's and say I would like to make some observations. Uh, the first observation I would make is that the doctrinal issue facing the Antioch church was seen as a larger issue than the local church. Uh, 
let's see, it seems like people came down from Judea and they were teaching there. Uh, actually, they went north. Apparently, it was lower elevation, but they went north down from Judea and they were teaching that uh, they needed to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses to be saved. And this created a controversy. And the issue was seen as a larger issue than just something that could be resolved there in the local church. They ended up sending a delegation, uh, Paul and Barnabas. I don't know if any others went or not, but uh, they sent them down to Jerusalem for a conference on the matter. And so uh, it had broader implications than just the Antioch church, a local congregation, and it was not resolved locally. The Antioch church actually saw itself as, as being part of a larger body, which at this point encompassed uh, the entire Christian church. In fact, when the Antioch church first started, apparently its origin came out of the dispersion or the scattering that happened from the persecution that, that Saul, Paul, was involved with when Stephen was stoned. And they, they went down there to... Uh, some people went to Antioch and they started preaching to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. And I don't know how really, I know this comes after the time frame, the chronology in the Bible where Peter went to the Gentiles, went to Cornelius in chapter what is it, 9 and 10. But in terms of actual time frame, I'm not sure what the chronology really was. Um, but be that as it may, they went down and they started to, to uh, convert preached to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were converted, and this kind of raised some, some uh, what to say, concerns or questions down at the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas up to check things out. Again, we see the interconnectedness. Uh, the, the churches understood themselves to be connected to one another. It was not just that they were just independent, unaffiliated churches uh, somewhere, that it was nobody else's business. There was a connection in the church that perhaps encompassed the whole, the entire church of, of that time. Well, with today's church fragmentation and doctrine and practice, not to mention the ge geographical spread of Christianity, it's impossible to replicate the earlier stages of Christianity in, in its entirety. I mean, it was just uh, impossible from several points of view, perspectives, for the worldwide church of God to really meet together and, and, and have a total, um, to have a, an accountable and meaningful relationship with one another. But I believe it was Ron Sider who said that every church should be part of a denomination. Now, of course, that's a man's opinion. That, that is not scripture. But I think he meant by that, that statement that just as we submit ourselves individually, to like-minded believers in a local church, so every church should submit itself to a larger body of like-minded believers or like-minded churches. So for all practical purposes, South Atlantic Mennonite uh, Conference is a denomination. Now, we don't see ourselves as a denomination, but we are rather self-contained. We we have our own statement of faith. We have our own rules and discipline. We have our own church organization. Um, and in a sense, we're kind of like, um, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention is that we are in that we're not nearly as large and we have different beliefs 
and, and all, but what I'm saying is, for all practical purposes, this conference is a, is a denomination. It represents the strength of nine churches united in belief and practice, and it provides a measure of safety and stability that comes from mutual submission to a collective body of churches. Just as we submit ourselves individually to one another within a local congregation, then when churches submit themselves as churches to one another in a conference, in a fellowship, uh, a meaningful fellowship in a denomination, then we get some of the same benefits on a church-wide basis that we get as individuals within a congregational basis. It brings uh, stability, it brings safety, it brings uh, some other benefits that we'll talk about later. Now some more observations here from uh, this episode here in Acts 15 and, and uh, going into chapter 16. The duly recognized leaders, the apostles and elders, were seen as the ones responsible to take the lead and give direction to dealing with uh, the issue at hand. We see that in, in uh, verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small uh, dissension and dispute with them, the Judaizers, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go. Yes, it was other people should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Then in verse 4, And when they had come to Jerusalem, they received by the church and the apostles and elders. Uh, verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. Verse 22, the first part. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to do something. To send... Uh, uh, to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and, and then we'll go on. Verse 23, they wrote this letter to them, the apostle and elders and the brethren. And then uh, we could go to another verse, but I'll read that one later. The issue was under the leadership of the apostles and elders, the duly recognized leaders, but it appears to be have done openly within the assembly of the larger church mem membership with at least uh, limited participation by the larger brotherhood. It was not something done back, you know, back in the corner. The apostles and elders didn't squirt off to a room over in the corner and make this decision and everybody else was in the dark. It was done openly. But yet they did uh, take the lead. The decision of this conference, another observation was the decision of this conference was binding not only on the Antioch church, but on the broader church as well, the entire denomination at that time. And we see that in verse 22 and following, uh, where I think I've already read some of that verse, but it says, And it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barnabas, Marcibus and Silas, leading men among the brethren, they wrote this letter by them, the apostles and elders and the brethren, to the, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. And so then we went, it goes on and explains that. 
that you abstain from things offered to idols from blood and certain things. And so it, it seems like that this was just not, a, you know, kind of a recommendation or something, but it was really binding. It was something they expected to be practiced in the church. And as well, in chapter 16, when uh, Paul uh, had recommended to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the churches again where we've already visited, and, and uh, they got into disputation, so he took Silas, and so they went off and went on to what we know as the second missionary journey. And it says in verse 4 of chapter 16, and as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. And so this is not the church at Antioch. This was the other churches. And, and so, you know, we're talking about that the Bible portrays a relationship between churches that is, uh, has some accountability, that has some authority, that has some, some uh, meaning, um, a meaningful relationship beyond uh, that, that really counts, that has some teeth in it. It is in the form of, of uh, representing to us what happened. It is not in the form of uh, a stated teaching, thus shall it be. And so I, I will be open about that. It, it comes from New Testament practice, what we observe of New Testament practice, rather than specifically stated New Testament doctrine. Well, there's no indication that the churches that received this uh, directive from conference, so to speak, uh, chafed or resisted uh, receiving this directive, which came from outside of a strictly congregational or local church decision. Rather, the church at Antioch rejoiced in hearing the decision. Uh, what verse is that in? Verse 31, and when they re had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And really, the decision that was made favored neither completely the Judaizers or the people who would want to have to do nothing with Judaism. Uh, the decision that was made, I think, was in light of, of uh, perceptions that misunderstandings that could be had uh, or perhaps uh, severe offense to practice one's liberty in the face of a Jewish believer who had been taught all his life that it was wrong to eat blood. And so th there was some compromise uh, not moral compromise, but there was some compromise in the decision that neither party, we could say, entirely got their own way if it would have been left up to them. But they rejoiced uh, by the encouragement. They were rejoiced by that decision. And in chapter 16, when it says about, in verse 4, how they went through and delivered this, uh, these decrees, and then it says in verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. It seems to have been a positive experience uh, in the life of the churches, not something that they chafed at and grouched about. Now, let's move on to the historical development of Mennonite district conferences. If you read in our Rules and Discipline, you will see that phrase, district conference, and I'll explain to that in a bit. But conference was the name generally used by both German-speaking and English-speaking Anabaptist Mennonites for gatherings uh, of the uh, church leaders to confer or to counsel about matters of common concern relating to the spiritual welfare of the church. These early conferences were not regularly scheduled events, but they were called as the need arose to address matters of faith and life, 
in order to foster a common practice or to reconcile differences among uh, the people, the churches. The first conference may have been the one which met at Schleitheim, Switzerland in 1527, in which the seven articles they adopted brought cohesion to a movement that was in danger of perhaps disintegrating. Another early one is dubbed the Martyr Synod. Uh, it was a meeting that was held that same year in Augsburg, Germany. Over the years, many more were convened, uh, which often resulted in some documents stating the agreements that were reached, uh, be they doctrinal or practical in measure, in nature. And many of those documents are available either in print or online. Uh, the Mennonite Encyclopedia is online. And so if you want to search that, you go to, it is called Global Anabaptist Mennonite Encyclopedia Online, GAMEO, G-A-M-E-O dot org. And uh, so some of those articles have been updated, but then they have uh, what you call them, hotspots or whatever, links that, that you can go uh, and, you know, go to some of these different documents. They're also, some of those things are, are published in books. But according to a Mennonite Encyclopedia article by Christian Neff and and Harold Bender, organized conferences with regular annual or semi-annual meetings first appeared in Europe in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Prior to that, it was just ad hoc, you know, as they were needed. But later, uh, they became more what we're accustomed to when we think of conference. The oldest conference in North America is uh, what was Lancaster Conference, now it goes by a different name, a meeting since about 1740, and Franconia, which I think now is called Mosaic, um, beginning about the same time. Uh, the development of conference into authoritative bodies that they have become, including giving direction and supervision to various activities, uh, such as, for instance, our conference has a, a, a missions committee that gives direction or facilitates uh, certain activities. We have a historical secretary. We have uh, a neighbor's newsletter. And these are functions coming out of conference, whereas the earlier conferences dealt with uh, more doctrinal issues and, and practical things rather than facilitating program. Uh, conferences now involve the facilitation of, of program. Uh, and, and this development happened, happened over time. But along with the development of conferences was that of districts. Now, districts, I believe, were typically composed of those churches under the administration of a particular bishop. Hence, they are called bishop districts. For instance, uh, in the Virginia Conference in the early years, there were meeting houses scattered around. People uh, did not have automobiles, so it was not as easy to go to those meeting houses. Uh, some might have been more distant, some more close. And so in a particular district, um, the bishop was more the senior pastor, we, we could say, the one in charge, and there were other pastors. But some of the churches, uh, the same was true in, in uh, up in Washington County, Maryland, that some of the churches did not have church every Sunday. You would have church uh, at, at maybe Weaver's here on, on this Sunday, and then at Lindale the other Sunday, or, or maybe at the Pike or, or whatever. Uh, Lindale was in another district. but And so... Pastors were not as attached to the local congregations as what they are now. It was more like a bishop and then a pool of pastors and a number of meeting houses. And, and so they worked this, this thing. You know, pastor would go here or there, a minister. But the bishop then was, was responsible. 
And so it was called a bishop district. Well, over time, there's been some deviation from that in district composition. Uh, the ratio of bishops to churches has changed. But in general, uh, and, and, and districts may have more than one bishop, but in general, the role of conference uh, is to set policy, and the role of districts is to administer the policy. Now, in light of the fact that conference was initially a gathering of ministers, I would like to quote from this article from Bender and Neff, and this was written in 1953. So this article is approximately as old as I am. And so, uh, you know, consider that in terms of it's, it's a bit dated. And it also is making reference not only to conference gatherings like, you know, we envision as a conference gathering, but the, a conference of conferences. Uh, there developed this thing called the General Conference where various conferences assembled in a very large uh, meeting. And this meeting really was not authoritative as the local district conferences were. It was where, though they expressed concerns about the larger church and developed um, develop statements and, and so forth. But listen to what they say. An interesting modern development regarding conferences, which is characteristic chiefly of the North American groups, is the opening of the sessions to the general public and the generous attendance of the conference sessions by the general membership of the church. The attendance at large crowds of large crowds naturally changed the character of the conferences since it became necessary to supply informational and inspirational addresses, often accompanied by special music numbers. Since customarily all the leaders of the denomination attend, the conferences, and this is more in reference to the general conference, become much more than the official synods partaking of the character of a family gathering on a large scale where acquaintances are made, renewed, fellowship intensified, and sympathetic personal face-to-face -face relationships made possible and maintained. This type of group relationship has a vital bearing on the solidarity and effective working relationships in the body. That was the vision for the formation of South Atlantic Conference, that it would be instead of the preachers running off to Virginia and only occasionally they would come here, that the body could be involved at this level of church administration. And I wish somehow or another it was more fully practiced, that, that we could enjoy the gathering of our conference meetings as a family reunion of, of our churches and we can enjoy the fellowship, and many of us do. I wish that we could have a positive outlook on this. This was particularly, uh, I think, a characteristic of the conservative Mennonite conference in, in latter years, uh, I mean in previous years. I don't know what's happening there in, in that conference now, but people would come from Iowa and Michigan and Virginia and Pennsylvania and Ohio, whatever, and get together, and it was like a family reunion. Well, we just, we're not um, as big, and well, we are about as scattered as that, but, but I wish that we could more um, implement that practice. Well, enough for that pep talk. Uh, many concerned Mennonites have a distaste for or a prejudice against the concept of conference, and some of that may simply stem from some sort of personal preference. Uh, some of it may reflect uh, an individualistic spirit and a strong desire to 
wield influence within the church, or it may reflect the distaste that comes from mid to later century, 20th century church history. During that period, the larger church was drifting away from some biblical practice and more conservative-minded churches, and leaders felt undercut by conference in maintaining discipline. For instance, um, Aaron Shank, who was a, a bishop in, in Lancaster Conference and who was uh, then with Eastern Conference and was one of the founders of Pilgrim Conference, he, he wanted to, you know, he felt pressure to offer communion to, to uh, uh, ladies who had cut hair. And, and so, you know, this type of thing happened, and so people ha had a negative reaction, some people, to just the very concept of conference, and it developed what was called the non-conference movement. They thought the problem was conference. Really, the problem was not conference, because at that point, the conference was drifting away from sound biblical doctrine and practice, and so there was negative peer pressure placed on people. I understand that. But if the conference is walking in a good path, the opposite occurs. It provides positive peer pressure on all of us to walk in good paths. And so the problem is not conference per se. It has to do with the direction that the conference is moving and perhaps you know some features of the conference organization. Now I want to go on to the third point, the, blessing, the value and blessing of a conference. Admittedly, a conference is not the only way to apply the New Testament practice of broader church relationships and accountability. Some people prefer a fellowship structure, which typically means that churches are more independent to create their own um, standards, perhaps within a framework of certain parameters. Uh, and, um, and perhaps there's other ways of doing it. I, I do think that sometimes the name that a group gives themselves did not necessarily correspond to the reality of what is going on. There may be some churches that are operate in a very strong conference mode who do not consider themselves conferences, but in fact, their practice uh, may be. So let me list a few things that I consider to be the value of the conference and to give some explanations in the process. First, conference broadens our relationship, heightens our experiences, and deepens our wisdom, thereby enriching us all. I would like to suggest that when we think of conference, let's not think first of conference meetings. Let's think first of our sister churches in the conference. Independent churches, similar to isolated individuals, can be robbed of a broader perspective and the enrichment that serious relationships with other churches bring. They can be somewhat ingrown. Well, conferences can too, but for example, when we form conference-wide committees, we don't just make the committee up from Hepzibah or from Barmel. Well, then that committee would reflect the peculiarities of our particular congregations. Rather, it's a committee that spans a number of churches, and that way it, it broadens the perspective, it broadens the experience, it broadens the wisdom of the committee, and beyond just... Uh, excuse me for using this word, but the puddle that an individual congregation is. It gives us a, broad, a larger framework. So let's uh, value being joined together with other churches in a meaningful relationship of, of uh, fellowship and enrichment and collaboration and accountability. 
Second value is that conference brings structure and order to church relationships. Was it the poet Robert Frost who said, good friends make good neighbors? Fences refer to understandings and, and respect between people. Fences define boundaries, and fences a good fence, keeps your cattle from wandering over on the neighbors and eating the bushes around the house and, and that type of thing. Now, a conference constitution is the fence in our inner church relationships. It's an agreement among us about the form and function of conference and the districts which form the conference. It defines conference officers, uh, the committees and other positions, their election, their tenures, and their duties. And the value of these fences, the value of a conference constitution or district con constitution is that we are not left to the mercies or to the lack thereof of strong and influential men who operate by rules they pull from the seat of their pants as they go along and impose upon the group. Uh, we value legal understandings about rent agreements, about money that is loaned or borrowed, or titles for vehicles or property deeds. We value those things because they speak of understandings. And so let's value the conference constitution as well. It's not just trying uh, to be formal for some, some sake. It's, it's agreements that we operate by, we honor and, with one another, and it keeps from some strong man uh, grabbing a hold of things and, and running over us. So they're not just so much formal nonsense. They promote harmony by defining understandings. A third value of conference is a conference diminishes tendency toward manipulation and extremism. To restate that positively, conference provides stability. Some people may be a bit put off by the formality of annual conference meetings, and what those who, who ridicule that formality may not know or appreciate is that some of those very features they smirk about diminish the potentials of individuals and groups with special interests and agendas to impose their will on the larger body. At the same time, some of those formalities and procedures protect the right of everyone, be they the majority or of the minority opinion, to express their views. And so let's begin with the roll call. The purpose of the roll call is not to highlight the conference leadership. Um, Rather, the Constitution says, our agreement, our fence, says that the majority of conference leadership shall constitute a quorum to do business. So that means that just three or five of us can kind of somehow or another sneak into a conference session and enact rules that affects the whole body. And well, we had an official conference session. Uh, no, it has to be at least half of the, of the leadership needs to be present in order to do this so that we can't just manipulate and operate things to, for a few people to impose their, their will on the larger majority. And along with that are other requirements like a 30-day notice to, to um, change the Constitution uh, and perhaps even the, the, uh, noted the, the uh, requirement that items for consideration at conference must be presented to the planning committee 45 days in advance of conference. I would apply here too. It's it's a way in which a strong, sneaky people cannot impose their will on the rest of the conference, uh, kind of behind our backs. 
So think about that the next time there's a roll call. A second thing which may seem a formality is asking permission of converts to ordained church leaders. Again, that requirement guards against the minority imposing agenda on the larger body by trying to pack the leadership uh, with leaders of a particular flavor, whether it's progressive leaders or traditional leaders. So you know that since uh, President Trump uh, uh, put a, a number of, of people, uh, nominated a number of people and Senate approved and manipulated to get, to get a, a conservative majority, now that the Democratic Party is in power, but they don't like that. They don't feel like the, the court has a proper balance. And so, you know, there has been talk, and I trust it probably will not happen, but been talk of adding some seats to the court uh, so that the court can be, you know, properly balanced. That's the type of thing we're talking about. Asking permission of conference is that, Dordain is that the entire uh, conference leadership is able to weigh in on that, and if they think that something smells fishy, they can, they can raise an objection. And so again, it is a protection for all of us so that we are not manipulated by politics. A third formality is the speaking and voting procedures, such as making motions and the like. Anyone, anyone can speak to any of the issues regardless of who is entitled to voting privileges on a given matter. Additionally, asking permission to speak and perhaps being denied permission to speak a second time until all who want to speak have had a turn uh, gives voice to all instead of allowing a big mouth to dominate. And so the procedure that is followed is not really strictly parliamentary procedure, but it, is, it takes its inspiration from that. It's kind of a modified um, uh, a modified format, perhaps, uh, of discussion, procedure for discussion and doing business that re removes some of the subjectivity and the ability of the moderator to be overly influential and to shift things his way. So, for example, when a motion has been made and seconded, it must then be considered and dealt with and not swept under the rug if it's not to the moderator's liking. He just can't shove it under the bench. No, it has to be dealt with. And also, there are proper procedures to, to follow if the motion is to be amended. Again, this protects the motion from being hijacked against the will of the body to carry a different load of freight. And so all this tone of formality isn't a matter of pretending to be uppity. Uh, it's bringing order and safeguards to the process of discussing and deciding matters of church business. So rather than smirk and smile, we ought to be thankful because it's a protection for us all. And then a fourth uh, area in which conference is sometimes criticized is that it moves too slowly. It takes too long to make changes. I understand that. On the other hand, it could also be argued that the time required ends up protecting against manipulation extremes stimulated by passionate and articulate spokespersons who induce us to make quick decisions and rapid changes. You know, we can be moved and somebody can, can uh, manipulate us or, or influence us to make a quick decision that really an extra year or two uh, uh, gives time for study and thought and perhaps the selling of emotions, thereby leading to a more deliberate and mature decisions resulting in greater stability. Now, a fourth 
value of conference. So, so that's what I've been talking about is the value of conference is that it aids us in keeping from being manipulated uh, and overly influenced by people uh, who have an agenda, who are able to articulate that agenda or to maneuver, to bring it about uh, and overwhelm the, the, uh, the body. A fourth value of conference, and I'll be done here shortly before too long, conference reduces tensions within local congregations. We have friends who move to a distant state from their home community to help give leadership to an outreach church, a church that apparently uh, was not officially sponsored by any church or church group. And those gathering to be a part of this new church must have had differing ideas as to what the church was going to be or who it was going to fellowship, affiliate with, or who knows, perhaps even if it was going to affiliate. But whatever, in the process of time, um, the group answered those questions. They developed their standards. They decided who to affiliate with. And... Uh, it resulted, but it was at the expense of the departure of some who presumably intended to be part of the church. So, that, you know, you have this kind of disparate group of people coming together in a cold climate to, to organize a church, and they, they didn't really have their plan filled out before they got there, and so by the time it was all said and done, it resulted in some people departing. Now contrast that to the formation of Bethel or Lighthouse or Evistow, Sure, there were matters that each congregation had to decide, um, but they were spared the strife of deciding church standards or deciding who to affiliate with or if indeed they would affiliate with anyone. And people deciding to attend or to be a part of, that, of those congregations, they knew that uphand. And so all that intention, all that tension and contention was eliminated. Um, there was a church that was within the arbor of the conference and so they could organize a church and move on and didn't have to decide those hot-button issues. Some churches value and practice making church policy and conducting administration by what I assume to be closed-door men's meetings. And there's a number of reasons I don't favor that approach, not least of which is that it excludes the sisters from hearing what is going on, of hearing it directly at that and then being able to knowledgeably discuss the issues with their husbands at home. I don't get the sense that what happened in Acts 15 was held behind closed doors. It was, it was an open meeting. And our conference meetings are in that, in that vein. They're open format, open to anyone. It allows the issues to be aired openly and policy to be developed in the presence of all who, who care to be there. And you should care. You should be there. By conference being deformed for major policy decisions rather than on the congregational level, it, 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 uh, it frees the church of the tensions that many independent, unaffiliated congregations um, have, to, have to deal with, and sometimes late at night, and sometimes with ruffled feelings and, and, uh, you know, and, and tension. I know of an independent congregation that uh, is significantly uh, in, in another state that's significantly governed by men's meetings. And there are four or five blood brothers who grew up in that church who are now at the age of 25 to 35 
years old, but they have not united with that church. And uh, they told someone that if they, the church, the men would quit arguing among themselves and get their act together, they, these brothers, would likely become a part of the church. And so that, that could happen. They get, in local congregations, there could be so much arguing or whatever going on. And some people enjoy, some people enjoy a good, uh, a good uh, uh, argument or, or whatever. But not everybody does. It's not always wholesome and upbuilding. It can be actually very destructive. A good tension-filled debate is the words I have down here. A diet of steady of of that uh, steady of that sort of thing can be destructive, and I believe that a conference organization removes a lot of the potential tensions from the life of local congregations. Also, the last value I want to mention is that conference provides a vehicle for dealing with problems which may arise. I was at a training session one week quite some years ago in Pennsylvania at a Bible college, and it was in the context of the students coming from a variety of, of different denominations for this training session. And the leader said at the beginning, he told us that we were not to talk about prophecy, predestination, or problems. Everyone has problems. And sooner or later, we were to focus on the task at hand, not on those things. And, and we all have problems, and churches have problems. And sooner or later, if your church hasn't had a problem, it will. And sometimes those problems involve leadership. And sometimes those problems are very sticky for a local congregation to deal with and a conference organization has or should have built-in methods and resources for dealing with those problems. One of those resources is simply, simply the ministerial body of the district that, that the church or the church leader is a part of. And if needed be, those matters can be taken to the conference itself. Well, in conclusion, I mentioned how some people think or feel negatively toward a conference organization, and I think that they would be hard-pressed to prove that from a strictly, uh, that a strictly unaffiliated independent congregation has greater biblical support than does a conference. But be that as it may, uh, there are those from a background of a looser church or arrangement who, for one reason or other, have come to value conference. One of our ministers at Barnwell was in Virginia for revival meetings in, in a southeastern conference church, and he was talking to a brother there who had moved to Virginia from the Midwest. And this family had been part of a church that I believe was actually part of a fellowship of churches, that, but this brother said that at the church where they were, there was a change in the leadership of the church, and as a consequence, the church really changed. Well, a strong-willed leader or, for that goes, a very weak leader, can really change an independent or a weakly affiliated congregation in a short period of time. And this brother and his family subsequently moved to Virginia to be a part of a conference, to be a part of South of Southeastern Conference. A conference arrangement may not be for everyone. I think it has blessed us in many ways, not least of which is stability, I hope we continue to value and embrace being a contributing and a receiving part of a group of churches to which we submit and from which we benefit. 
May the Lord bless us all.